Hello, sweet dorks. We are new to Who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new, or just need an entry into classic Doctor Who, we are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Dan. I'm Cole. And I'm Stephen. It's nice to talk to you guys again. Absolutely. My word. Nice to see you in little boxes in front of me. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. As you may have gathered again, sweet dorks, we're still under lockdown and still recording each other separate from separate places. Some some close, some near, some far. Well, I'm in Bedfordshire. I don't know about you two. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I could hear mine works behind you. So, the Dalek Invasion of Earth. How exciting. Yes, very exciting. Season two, story two. Yeah, a real uh, blast from the past 1964 here. So, Doctor Who's about a year old at this stage. Steve, we quite often ask you for a one sentence to explain this story, but maybe this time around we'll just say... What is this one about? Yeah, because I've got a little bit longer than a sentence, but here we go. It's something along the lines of, in the wake of the devastation caused by a deadly virus, the fascistic rulers of a future Britain suppress the good people of the land through a self-serving regime. They are supported by brainwashed thugs who stand against what their forebears fought valiantly against. Will the dialect succeed in hollowing out the core of the nation, taking it away from its rightful place? Take that as you will. <laughs> I take it a certain way. <laughs> oh, I forgot about the meteorite, the meteorites and the virus and that's all that stuff. It's the first time we see it, isn't it? But this is not the last. Terry Nation is almost obsessed with viruses and, uh, you know, certainly we, we, we see it in Doctor Who a few times, but even to the point where he actually creates a television series in the 70s called Survivors that is based essentially on a, on a global pandemic. So this is kind of like the first hint of, of one of those Terry Nation tropes. Well, uh, may we uh, venture forward to our TARDIS team? Mm. The original, you might say. So this is the Doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan, who we actually saw in our first episode zero, An Unearthly Child. Mm. And here they are one year on pretty much to the day. Yeah. And still the TARDIS team, although not necessarily for much longer. Yeah. We'll get into that a little bit later. For the only time ever, I would really like to just skip over the Doctor for a second and go straight to Barbara, Jacqueline Hill, because <laughs> she is so, so great in those first couple of seasons. I think she's like one of my favourite companions ever. She's got like impeccable diction, fabulous hair. She's never, she never seems yeah. to get, because Susan always gets so flustered, Barbara has to be the cool head. And like, she's also the only companion I would ever buy as someone who could actually be a resistance fighter. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the rest of them, are, like Ian's just kind of bumbling and Susan's goes to pieces immediately. And Barbara's the only one who I could actually see probably possibly holding a rifle. <laughs> yeah. She drives that truck. It's, it's just, she just takes it in stride. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so going on to the rest of the TARDIS team, it's William Hartnell. Yeah. We've seen him only twice before in Utah. We, we obviously did An Unearthly Child, but also The Tenth Planet, his last story. Mm. We did that a little while ago yeah. now as well. Here we are looking at one of his recognized classics, The Dalek Invasion of Earth. What do we think of William Hartnell and how has he changed, mm. certainly since that first episode that we did way back when? He's less less irritable, maybe? Yeah, yeah. less gruff. Uh, interesting for the, for the first actor ever to take on this role, to have to shape his doctor. Yeah. William Russell and uh, Caroline Ford as Ian and Susan. Uh, Susan we can't say much about because it's a bit of a spoiler, so we'll get into that later. Yeah. But yeah, William Russell, yeah. charming as ever. He plays the only character, he, he plays like the only Doctor Who companion I can ever actually imagine accidentally getting into a bomb. <laughs> <You know what laughs> I, mean? I love him. Accidentally. 
such a classic. And you still have the like original uh, producer and script editor and, and a bunch of the same crew from the first season. Producer Verity Lambert and script oh. editor David Whittaker. We did cover some of their work before. Our first episode zero, Unearthly Child. Yeah, the classic, the, the first ever team, the one people who, who started it all. Verity Lambert, amazing producer. And she worked pretty hard i think she was like she because she did two years right i think she was pretty burned at the end uh, I, I read that she did 70 shows in 18 months which sounds like a hell of a wow. lot mm. it certainly it. does hard working people yeah doctor who was on pretty much nine months of the year once a week so there was definitely a lot of content that they had yeah, to go through to, uh, at that mm. time and she was very young she was about 27 i think wild. Um, when she was yeah. hired as the producer first producer of doctor who what do we think of uh the writer of the dalek invasion of earth Mr. Terry Nation. Ooh, Terry Nation. Terry Nation. So much has been said about this man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously someone who was shaped by his formative experiences in terms of the dialects. We'll get onto that later and very much how they become a, an analogist for the Nazis here. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Terry Nation back about 11 months after his first story, The Daleks, which really sort of kicked off a national phenomenon mm. uh, with the Daleks. Mm. And Dalek mania. But yeah, Terry Nation here is sort of setting down some tropes and ideas that I think we will see him return to over the next decade or so. Uh, and David Whitaker, script editor. And also he wrote a bunch of stories for Doctor Who as well, right? He absolutely mm. did, yeah. So the next story after this is the one that he writes, The Rescue, yeah. almost establishing something that I guess we see later with Terrence Dix and the like, where the outgoing script editor uh, writes the, the next story for the show. Mm. Uh, but yeah, David Whitaker is an enormously influential writer and presence on the show in the first year. You know, we can, we can talk about him in more detail later on, but um, yeah, an absolute giant of the show yeah. and someone whose shadow and legacy really sort of is, is still inherent to the way that Doctor Who is conceptualised even today. I think mm. he also wrote one of Cole's favourite ever stories, Ambassadors of Death. Which ah, yes. I, I promise we'll get to it one day. <laughs> we will. We will. Perhaps we should uh, mention our director, Richard Martin. Yeah, so one of the mainstays of BBC Doctor Who in the early days, uh, someone who perhaps has his limitations, particularly in the studio, but does a decent enough job here, particularly in the location shoots. And this is the first time that Doctor Who actually does outside the studio. And again, Mm. we'll talk more about that later on. But uh, Richard Martin is, yes, a colourful character Mm. who uh, directed many of the early Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, some really really cool ones. Like he did uh, Edge of Destruction. I've got uh, Web Planet and one of my personal favourites, The Chase. Which is just insane. Yeah. <laughs> they're all like pretty. Ooh, they're yes, all like yes. pretty visually dynamic, pretty like visually wild. I did read that he he went. He eventually went on to direct uh, All Creatures Great and Small with like Peter Davison. Is that right? Oh, adorable okay. coincidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is adorable. <laughs> um, and if we uh, yeah, before we move on, I just want we we haven't done that many Hartnells, so just want to dip my toe into that amazing intro i love that intro the beautiful like titles and, mm. and that wonderful ron grainer delia derbyshire score it's just like the original version of yes it. it's so spooky mm. it's, every time i see it i think is this my favorite it's it's iconic isn't it yeah there's, there was nothing like this ever seen before on television mm. so yeah absolutely haunting and and starkly memorable uh, and yeah delia derbyshire's score or rendition of ron grainer's theme is is central to she's that. just a superhero she is she's absolutely is what's that story about uh grainer when she presented her, her finished version to him he said something like oh wow i can't believe i wrote th- i wrote this and she said well you wrote most of it like <laughs> she, she wasn't letting him get away with that I don't want to alarm you, but I've accidentally found myself inside a bomb, oh. and it appears to be moving. Cole, how? Uh, what should I do? It just looks like a spoiler bomb. Yeah, I think it's a spoiler. I'm just going to pull out some of these wires. Yeah, just pull them all out. 
And then, yeah, oh my god, uh, the countdown's beginning, it's going down the shaft. Uh oh. Dan, you're in the saucer, aren't you? Can't you somehow sort of, like, stop this? Yeah. Alright, it's coming. It's coming, Cole. Hopefully this works. Oh, uh, it's all good. I just hopped out the bottom of it. Everything's fine. Now we're in spoiler town. Excellent. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Good stuff. Hello. <laughs> All right, the plot. So let's start this off. Let's recognize the fact that this is actually our first alien invasion of Earth story ever. Yeah. Which is pretty important. Yeah, it's pretty great. And uh, yeah, also, I just had this weird feeling when they land in the um, by the riverside, but it doesn't even occur to them that they could not be at the right time. You know, like he's always, there's always that thing where the doctor's trying to return his companion to the right time and place, mm. especially with Ian and Barbara. I realized that it's the first ever f- the story set on a future Earth. Yeah, it's really cool. And no one figures it out for quite a while. We're meant to be in 22nd century London, right? Yeah, I think I've read 2168 somewhere along the line. But yeah, so I guess it's our first alien invasion. like, And the first time they ever sort of filmed aliens uh, out in London, like the, with the Cybermen and uh, doing it with the Daleks. Yeah, the lots of location shooting, which we'll get into. It's but great. I think yeah. probably so we should it. point out this was... It, it is, of course, the return of the Daleks, the triumphant return of the Daleks, um, and something that, in the midst of what what is now known as Dalek mania, which we'll talk about a bit later as well, but um, due to popular demand. Yeah, so is it because people loved them? People loved them so much that they wanted them to come back. Is that so? They weren't intending to ever bring them back originally. No, not originally. No, it was just meant to be a one-off story. But with 10 million viewers on their hands and the eruption, as Cole says, of, of Dalek mania, which is you know mm. something that kids really latched onto, and it was a playground phenomenon. Yeah, you know, lots of toys and merchandising that capitalized yeah. on that, making mm. Terry Nation very mm. rich in the process. That yeah. was mm. the start of it, and it's really uh, here we are, a year after the initial screening of the Daleks. We've been to their planet. Now they're coming to invade us and next logical step in that story. Yeah, absolutely. And let's look at the Daleks for a moment. I mean, the design is amazing. <laughs> I can see why they took off the way they did. Like, totally. they, they look fantastic. Iconic. Yeah, definitely. There's lots of things, isn't there? I mean, the the, the word exterminate is now part inherently of linked. Yeah, and it comes in with this story, doesn't it? But on the design call, that's Ray Cusick, who was a BBC uh, designer at the time. I would say equally as responsible for the fame and the uh, sort of appeal of the Daleks mm. at that point in time and, and continuing as well. But he'd never received, I guess, the uh, the royalties that someone like Terry mm. Nation did as a result of enjoyed of those desi- Yes, exactly. And, and it's kind of a shame because Ray Cusick did obviously a lot of the work in terms of the visual development of that very iconic design mm. that sticks with us so it's quite a shame that he probably wasn't quite uh, remunerated in the way that he could have been i think i think mm. part of the reason the design is so has lasted so long is because it's it is really iconic and they are amazingly designed they are also daleks are also inherently a little bit silly like when you you know what i mean you people Definitely. look at, yeah people from that time like i was watching uh, the doctor the Dalek movie with uh, Bridget's dad the other day and he was like that they're silly aren't they they're just pepper pots on wheels they can't go upstairs <laughs> you can put a blanket over them to beat them and stuff it's it's the old joke it's the old joke like how do you defeat a Dalek put a yeah. staircase in the way you know yeah and I think because they're a little silly and you can sort of have a chuckle at them that makes people love them more and you feel protective of them yeah. do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah I think that's got to be part of the reason that the design has lasted so well because people don't want it to change and and bless their little hearts as they wobble along in yeah. stories that are this old you know they're, yeah. like, they're never quite on an even footing are they they wobble, they creak. I think, you know, the, they really got rid of the wobble with the movies. Oh, yeah. in the cushion yeah. films. They yeah. really yeah. move so smooth, smooth right? Yeah, definitely. Particularly oh, yeah. that shot of the Dalek coming out of the, the Thames, which is, you know, so quick in, in the movie mm. as opposed to the television uh, show, which is, 
you know, still iconic. There's that wonderful shot of the Dalek emerging from the Thames, and it does yeah. have that effect. But it does not look amazing on the on the Cushing film. Have we mentioned the movie yet, Sweet Dogs? If you didn't know, there is kind of like a strange movie remake of this. Let's touch back on Dalek Mania for a second, and you know, the 1960s, and sort of, mm. I do believe that when something is just so popular, the only answer, logical answer, is to make a movie about it and put it on the big screen in color, right? <laughs> So this has happened twice as a result of Dalek Mania with uh, Peter Cushing stepping into oh, the role of so an earthbound character called Doctor mm-hmm. Who. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about this. Oh, I could talk forever about this movie. Mm. A breath of beautiful, fresh colour air. It was amazing. <laughs> so they made yeah. so they made two. They made Doctor Who and the Daleks and then Dalek Invasion Earth 2150, which are they're, they're just the first two Dalek stories repackaged, slimmed down and made into... Yeah beautiful colour films yep. of Peter Cushing and a, and a different cast. Slicker, much more expensive version of this. Yeah. yeah I, I really enjoyed it. What about you guys? Much more easy to understand <laughs> version, yeah. in my opinion. But, um, you know, look, there, there are similarities and there are differences between the two. Yeah. Like, uh, in the in this world, this character, Doctor Who, that's his, actually his name. Yeah, he says, I'm Doctor um, Who. An, that was so funny. Yeah. He's a human being. He's just a professor. Mm. A brilliant professor who creates his time machine called TARDIS. Um, we still have the granddaughter Susan. We still have sort of a female companion, like kind of like Barbara, but it's not yeah. Barbara. That's the that's the it's one thing Barbara, they really yeah. needed in this movie. Barbara, they really needed Jacqueline Hill. Yeah, really yeah. Um, yeah. There's a few. There's a few more. There's there's a few different. Uh, my favorite difference is that. Well, I think Cushing's wig is far superior to Hartnell's wig. That's, that's <laughs> my biggest take. Look. Cushing in the role is interesting. I find that he's very much, and probably been told to, emulate William Hartnell. Yeah. It's I, not really like he's putting his own, he's not putting his own... I think that's true. He's not making it his own. I mean, he has his own charm, um, but yeah, I think he is he's quite good, um, but he is very authentic as kind of a Hartnell. He's, a, he's so authentic that they did have to um, write him out because he was ill for some of production. <laughs> so oh. they did have to write him <laughs> Just like Hartnell. That's very Hartnell, yeah. That's happened a couple of times to Hartnell and, and in this story too. And it's almost it's almost a scene for scene recreation, but with a lot of sort of faff taken out, um, uh, a mm. ma- much bigger budget. Like the ruins, the ruins of London mm. are all on location, mm. and they just look amazing. Oh my god! And I mean the Dalek saucer, that oh. interior. What an incredible set! Yeah, the exterior and the interior. I love that exterior. Yeah. It was very Thunderbirds. It was so smooth, and then like the interior was. <laughs> it was, just it was beautiful, beautiful, colorful. I watched it. Yeah, I watched. Like I said, I watched it with Bridget's dad, um, and he was just like, "Why are all the lights on the control panels constantly flashing?" He was like, "Why are they flashing all the time?" <laughs> it was great. Beautiful little attention to detail that a budget can afford. I yeah. guess <laughs> it's oh. um yeah um like lots of things like um. Yeah, even the Robomen are like more speedy. They're more like drones. Yeah. Mm. The Robomen talk faster and the Daleks talk faster. You know, this is one of my pet peeves, the aliens who talk really slow and can't yeah. get yeah. anything done because they're so <laughs> slow. These Daleks are like slick and they're fast. They move fast. Yeah. And the Robomen are just kind of like PVC clad weirdos with yeah. this with like motorcycle helmets with just a tr- transistor radio glued to yeah, the side. Yeah, yeah. It was really, he took the he like took the the panel off and he was like oh advanced technology and british dad was like what that's <laughs> 60s transistor radio it was great oh man oh yeah and they had the instead of ian they have this this bobby character like a policeman mm. who stumbles into the tardis mm. at the start and i didn't realize it took me a couple of like about 20 minutes to realize i was like who is this guy he's so familiar it's bernard cribbins. and it was bernard cribbins who played wilf mott in the in season Wow, that's so cool. He's so young. It, it blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, it's him. And he was he was great. <laughs> I think the pace of the film is so different to the original, just because yeah. this is meant to be an action-adventure film. This has got to be big, dazzling, on the big screen, 
Kids are going to go, wow. Mm. It's, it, that's what Dalek Mania essentially is. Let's make this thing pop. Yeah, it was yeah, big, brash, like, and it has a constant big band soundtrack playing. There's like bongo drums in the background totally. all the time. Like, how 60s is that? You could not get more 1960s. Yeah, and um, it's just like a rip roaring, like fun thing. And um, I, I would, I think, I would recommend it equally as much, if not possibly a little bit more than the original. More than the original, <laughs> yeah. It's dated better, that's for sure. That's fair enough, yeah. And they, they, uh, even Bridget's dad noticed that on the in the movie uh, Flying Saucer, there's a multi-level interior, and like the Daleks are yeah. on ramps, just flying around on ramps, like super fast. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so they only made two because the second one didn't do that well. You, Cole, um, Steve, you said, how much do you say mm. it cost? So it's in, in old money, it was around about £285,000, um, 50000 of which was spent on the marketing. Yeah. But nonetheless, that still equates to around about £5.5 million pounds in today's money it's, on that budget. Which yeah, wow. That's huge. It's an 80-minute feature film for Doctor Who. That would have been mm. absolutely unparalleled. Yeah, they must have not known what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the reason it got a budget like that is because this is essentially not a vehicle for Doctor Who. It's a vehicle for the Daleks. Mm. Yeah. Ah, so yeah, you're right. It's Dalek mania. And you're right. And so my, the biggest sad thing for me is that if, because it flopped, they never made the third one, which was going to be based on the chase. Could you imagine? You love the chase. My God. <laughs> Guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this right now. If we'd yeah. gotten the chase film, you do realise that the Beatles would have actually done a cameo <laughs> oh for it, right? God. They would have oh. been written into the film. It would have been so much faster and in colour and it would have been a wild adventure because they go to so many different places and times and, uh, you know, you say what you like about it. There's lots of things wrong with the chase, but if they'd made a slimmed down, slick movie version of it with mechanoids that talked faster than, you know, one syllable a minute, it would <laughs> oh have been God, amazing. Yeah. I would have been super on board for that. So that's my big lament. Shall we Shall we slip back into the black and white world and go back to the actual... the the, the BBC Dalek Invasion of Earth? Yes, let's do that. You mean the one we're supposed to be talking about? Yeah. Okay. But seriously, if you if you like Dalek Invasion of Earth, I'd strongly recommend the movie because it's really fun. Oh, definitely. Good recommendation. So, are we going to talk about the plot? <laughs> the insane plot of Dalek Invasion of Earth? <laughs> yeah. Well, well they lack thereof. <laughs> sure. It's, it's rubbish. It's nonsense. <laughs> really, it just serves as a backdrop mm. to have the images of the Daleks on Earth, and in particular, strolling around London, doing their little Nazi-style salutes with their suckers up in the air, and <laughs> you know, having a the the imagery, I guess, of Blitz London uh, returned here as yeah. well in, in the 22nd century. So, I mean, and this is fine. This is what Doctor Who does, I think, particularly well when it's done at its best, is to entrench images in the public's mind mm. that are actually familiar to them from history or from the past or from you know experience. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is what, oh gosh, 20-odd years, 19-odd years after the end of the Second World War. We mentioned Terry Nation is someone who sort of very much grew up in that period. Mm. And so these are hugely mm. informative influences on, on his writing. I think that the plot really doesn't make any sense but it doesn't need to it's really just about the visuals of having the, the daleks mm. return and this time as i said before it's not on their home planet they've come to invade us and, and yeah. that's really why this story exists that's right. i am um, I'm, I'm a bit i think i like the plot a little bit more than you guys <laughs> i i read the novelization uh, when i was a kid and oh me too what a fantastic terence dick story yeah was it yeah was it re rewritten by terence dicks it was and uh, that first line is, is one of the yes. immortal beginnings of any target novelization through the ruins of a city stalk the ruins of a man which is so obviously a reference to the robo man who throws himself into the thames at the beginning that's of the story right. just a wonderful that's why when i watch so this I do, I do watch it with a bit more love in my heart especially especially yeah that, that first scene is always hits hard oh. for me when that 
And then later on, you see his mm. the his corpse floating in the river. That always kind of hits hard because of that line is yeah. so great. Because I read the book first, it was it's it was really tight and fast, and the just like the idea um, of yeah. mm. it's different to like your normal like kind of sixties you know normal sixties alien invasion. It's like they want to invade and they just want to dominate the world. Like they just want to take over the world so they can be in charge. But this one is like. They've already taken over, well, and um, it's over. The, the war's been fought and done, and the, we lost, mm. and they're mm, here. And mm. one of the things I love about it is, yeah, that it's not just that, that simple. Like, it's already it's already happened. And they start, when they land, you know, Susan, uh, Barbara says there's no traffic noise. There's no, the river's quiet. It's not normal. It's eerie. And they can't see out of the gully that they're in. So they don't realize. And it, so it takes a, quite a while for them to realize that things are different. You know, they see the poster. And then it's, it sort of all builds up slowly. It's very eerie and creepy until... Eventually, you get the full-on impressive stuff where you get the Daleks crossing Westminster Bridge and, and all that stuff. Um, but it's a slow build. And, I, and, and reading the book, uh, when they when they got to the part where they were going to like hollow out the Earth and use it as a spaceship, to me that like it's ridiculous. Like, but to me, it kind of blew. It's rubbish. It blew my mind as a kid. I never had. The, I just never thought of something like that. And I just thought it was so huge and amazing. And I think because the book's quite tight and quick, uh, the, the problem with the plot in the show is that it just takes so long to get anywhere and they f- there's so much filler in there mm. you know what I mean that's that's my problem with it mm. but I think I like it a little bit more than you guys yeah but what what a first episode it does the things that certainly 60s Dalek stories do which is to set that dread mood piece mm. and it's not until obviously the very end that we get the reveal of the Dalek which is almost like a staple of Doctor Who you don't get to see the villain even if it's in the title of, of the story until the actual end of part one Yeah, and and that sort of image of the Dalek coming out of the water again is so iconic but you, you mentioned it earlier Colin mm. as well those little clues the whether it's the posters the abandonment of the warehouse mm. the sort of general decay the mm. weeds growing the collapse of the bridge, mm. all of mm. this stuff is like something's not quite right here. Yeah. It deepens that mystery. And, and to me, that's really important because in a six-part show where you kind of do need to have some sort of padding to some degree yeah. to make it last six mm. weeks, that first episode is actually probably one of the most successful episodes, I think, of, of the six parts, if not the most successful because of that, that sort of mood that it creates and the way that it does that through that mystery, really quite wonderful. On that point about clues, probably the best one, that really reflects what you're talking about in that episode is just that sign we see everywhere. Do not dump yeah, bodies in the river. Up. It is forbidden to dump bodies in the river. Yeah, that's so good. Like, where, on, under what circumstances would you see that in, in Exactly. Just, is yeah, this an issue? Yeah, that yeah. is amazing. And Barbara just sees a corpse floating in the Thames. Like, it's mm. uh, mad. Uh, and, and, like, once you've got to... The, we've got to the point where we know... Uh, after the info dumps that we, we know they've taken over, we know they're in charge and there's a resistance against them. Like normally in Doctor you know, the, that would be it. They would just fight the Daleks. The, there would be a couple of episodes where they fight the Daleks, they win, blah, blah, blah. But then they, to, to, I guess you could say they to pad it out. But to me, I, th- I really loved it. They sort of slowly introduced this central mystery of the mine in Bedfordshire. They just mention it once or twice. It's not a big deal. They don't <laughs> foreground it. And then it gets more and more, <laughs> becomes more and more of a thing until yeah. it's like, you just, you're like, what are they doing? And you really want to know. And like, I suppose you guys think it's a huge letdown, but I loved mm. it. And then, <laughs> I really loved it. it I, look, it, in terms of the plot, it is yes, but I think you've got you've got to look at the fact that you know we've got the the shift to outside location filming, which is really quite wonderful for the mm. first time we see it in Doctor. It's mm. quite successful. We have a quarry. Yeah. Oh and, yes, uh, <laughs> yes, the first one ever. All right, quarry alert. All right, the siren's ringing, guys. There's a quarry alert. It's time for quarry of the month, Club. Just a quick little insert here. So the first ever Doctor Who quarry, and it was called John's Hole. John's Hole Quarry in Kent. John's Hole! So thank you, John's Hole. We salute you. Special place in Doctor Who history. Um, 
the plot itself is nonsense. I absolutely like cannot get over that. But the one thing that redeems it is probably what we see in the end of series four in Russell T. Davies' Doctor Who, where we have the return to the Daleks shifting Earth into arrangement and alignment of planets uh, in uh, stolen Earth journeys. And, and for that reason alone, I can kind of look back on this and go, yeah, fair enough. It sort of provided the pretext for something so amazing as that. But in the story itself, and particularly growing up, I just sort of thought, this is rubbish this is bonkers there's no way the dialects would be doing this there's no reason for it <laughs> and i think the the shift away from that uh, you know london under the nazis during the blitz you know that sort of dystopian uh, vision of what um, could have happened if operation sea lion you know came to pass and, and the nazis were able to invade is the the more uh, enthralling and sort of a sinister part of the story that I think probably should have been made more of. But um, yeah, they've got to they've got to stretch it to six episodes so we have yeah. that shift. And I think maybe the use of location filming work actually sort of helps to mm. to transition us and and sort of take us to that part of the story, even though. Oh, it just makes no sense. I don't know. I don't know, like yeah. how 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 dumber how much dumber this like the idea of piloting a planet is compared to some other Doctor Who plots. You know, there's lots of crap mm. Doctor Who plots. I don't know if this one's that bad. <laughs> this one's up there though. This one's <laughs> up. There. I suppose it is. This is top ten. But I do have a soft spot for it. So yeah, that's fair. Let, let's move on from the terrible plot, and um, I just really I really wanted to mention something to you guys because I'm really curious as to whether or not you picked up a certain supporting member of cast who they eventually became famous for playing. <laughs> I Did anyone recognize the character Wells? Uh, yeah, I think played by Mr. Rumbold. It's Nicholas Smith who played Rumbold in Are You Being Served? Oh man. I was looking <laughs> at him. So good. I was looking at him I'm thinking I'd know those juggies <laughs> anywhere. And I had to look it up, but I was like, yep, I was right. It's Nicholas yeah, about Smith. 10 years before Are You Being Served, it's an uh, unmistakable silhouette, isn't it? Absolutely. And if I can just quote from the uh, wiki page, apparently he persuaded Richard Martin, the director, to expand the role so that his character appeared in three of the serial's six episodes <laughs> instead of only one as originally scripted. Earned himself a bit more money there. He really wanted that part. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the location yeah. shooting, Steve. I think you mentioned like this was this was new for Doctor Who. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's sort of the the first time that the shows are really stepped outside of a studio space. Well, I think it's really done perfectly well. I mean, Richard Martin, for all his faults as a director, particularly in the mm. studio, has done an amazing job in capturing that striking mm. visual of Daleks yeah. doing the Zig Heil down uh, Westminster Bridge mm. and across into Trafalgar yeah. Square. These are iconic images of London recognisable to a worldwide mm. audience, uh, and they absolutely sort of uh, are framed yes. perfectly. I think this may have been done you know, very early on a, on a summer's morning just as the, the sun was sort of coming up and they had full light. But obviously it's deserted mm. and it looks mm. like a London that's, that's also in ruins as well. So all of that sort of particularly well done. And I really think that it's one of the three things that I sort of admire about this story. The, the visuals of the Daleks strolling around London, yeah. conquered London, a ruined earth, and them as the rulers. It's, it's wonderful. Mm. And I think you're right. I think that's Richard Martin. Mm. Yeah, it really is. It's so ambitious, you know, like building up from that sort of eerie sense of um, quiet in London. And finally, like the, it's really kind of a, it's a climax yeah. of sorts for me. It's like a big punch where you see Daleks crossing the Thames and like going up to Trafalgar Square. Like it's wild mm -hmm. and, and like there's no people around. I just think that's so mm. ambitious and amazing that they pulled it off. It must have been a Sunday mm. or something, you know, like and and there's little just those little things mm. they put in, like they put, you know, the, like the sort of Dalek lot symbols the Dalek language that they, they sort of pasted up sure. around. There was one yes. stuck to Nelson's column, I think. Right, uh, yeah, right. and it's like on the front. It's on the front of all the right. Dalek graffiti. Yeah, it's really cool. They, apparently, they put yeah. tape on um, 
like Nelson's column and a couple of other things, and they nearly got in trouble with the police. That's pretty great. <laughs> yes. I love that. What was the reason given for the... Um, and style-wise, I think it's a great look, but the, the radar dishes on the back of the Daleks... Yeah, the in-story reason is um, obviously one of the main sort of limitations of the Daleks that we see in the first serial, uh, the Daleks, is that they're sort of bound to their city by virtue of the fact that they have to be in contact with a, a source of static electricity which comes through the floors of their of their city. Obviously, mm. they're away from that here. Mm. They're sort of traversing mm-hmm. around the tarmac of, uh, of London um, and, and, and away from that source. So yeah. the, the sort of solar panel on the back... Uh, suggests that that's their energy source, that that's how they're getting their, their static electricity. Yeah. It's a great save, isn't it? Because it looks awesome. Yeah. It looks and great. They, yeah. And the, the dishes that they have on the back, I think they sort of mirror the dishes on the side of the Ro- Roboman helmets, like how they made the communicate with the Roboman. Uh, yes, of I think course. It's, yeah. it's right, great. right. Lovely. And there's lots of good Dalek design in this one. Like, I really love, I really love the flying, I know the flying saucer itself mm. is a little bit crap, but like mm. the set, of the um the set of the landed saucer on I think it's on a roof on a helipad yeah I just love that set I think it's yeah so ambitious and it's shot so well and they off they also shoot it mm. in the dark as well a yeah. fair bit there's a lot of night night stuff in this like mm. they do they do night stuff in this better than they will in later later episodes better than the eighties you know what I mean it looks great <laughs> true true that that set with the ramp the Robo Men standing around on the helipad like I buy it it looks great I think it's awesome yeah. Mm. Do you guys think that the the Robo Men would have been like the seed for the Cybermen later on? Potentially, the bar helmet yeah. thing going on. I don't know. The, the, hel- the helmets are similar. I think they're, I think they're really. I think they're they're much scarier than the show makes them look because they're, they're a bit silly in the mm. show. Like maybe it's my it's the book influence again. Uh, in the book, they sort of have discs in their heads, and um, mm. they they they're really awful. It's like really awful body horror, and and they they're sort of. In the sh- like in the story, they can't be reversed, so they 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 can only die, right? Which is really awful when they when they put that Robo Man out out through the the garbage chute in the in the saucer. I just imagine like yeah. a broken dead dude, and they and they kind of look, they yeah. look gross, don't they? Like they've got all the, yeah. the wires hanging out of their necks. You know, they, they it's kind of barbaric. Yeah, yeah, they are scary. Is it Larry and um, what's his brother's name? Because he has to confront his own brother. Like these are people that you've known in your life and love, and they can never they can never be oh yeah. Restored. They can only serve the Daleks or die and you may have yep a powerful scene like he takes his brother out with him and um in a sense saving him but yeah yeah, i think that they're scarier than having a planet full of like millions of daleks just having a few daleks control you know like in the in the new show often there's like thousands of daleks on the screen everywhere all the time and you kind of get you get Mm. uh, fatigue from it like you're like Mm. oh it's not that scary anymore because it's just i've seen it before Mm. but like the idea of they have a slave army is much scarier to me I think for for the time as well. Look at the idea of the Robo Men. It's 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 mm. kind of new. It's certainly yeah. new for Doctor Who. Yeah, human mind slaves is like it's pretty new and it's and it's and it's pretty scary. It's ter- terrifying to children as well. I would imagine. Mm. I do I do love the Dalek uh, saucer set. I love the the sort of angular sliding doors that I think are from the original serial. Yeah, which they yeah. Kept. Also the the something I didn't mm. notice for a while, but as in on the city of Scar, yeah. Something else that I really loved was that that sort of there's a hum in the background and that heartbeat sound, mm. which I didn't notice for mm. a while, but I think it, yeah. That's the noise. That's the Dalek saucer noise used to this day. Yeah, it's so integral. I, I love that noise. It's like the TARDIS hum. It's just yeah. there. Sure. It's always been there. Yeah, it is like an evil version of the TARDIS hum, mm. and it's it's, it's kind of high pitched, and then it has that heartbeat, and it like that, that plays all the way all the way through the chase. Lads, I want to touch back on Dalek Mania for a sec, and it's there's a reason for it though. There's another big cultural explosion happening at 
mm. almost exactly the same time and eerily lines up with <laughs> the timeline of Dalek Mania, and that's Beatlemania. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, Cole. It's, it's actually pretty eerie in, in the way that those two run parallel to one another. And it's maybe not too much of a surprise. This is maybe the first huge flourishing of British culture after the Second World War, where, as I say, mm. sort of 18-odd years after the, the end of it, and there's a generation that have grown up not knowing the war. They're teenagers mm. now, and they're looking yeah. for something aspirational. They're looking for something that speaks to them of the moment, but also is future-facing mm-hmm. rather than backward-facing. It's, yeah, remarkable the way in which Dalek Mania and Beatlemania address that gap or that hole and deliver that to a young generation of Britons who grown up after the Second World War and are absolutely mm-hmm. in love with both the Daleks and Doctor Who and, and also Beatlemania too. Do you think that's partly, like, like, like the teenager kind of, like, they kind of, the whole concept of it, that kind of begins in the 50s in America, like when you've got Elvis and stuff like that, and, sure. and kids going crazy over things. James yeah. Dean. Like, do you think, it, like, it takes a little longer for that sort of thing to happen in England because it was so much harder after the war and it took so much longer to get back that you couldn't absolutely. really be a freewheeling easy teen until the 60s and the Beatles. I think that's absolutely true, yeah. And a part of that is also the absolute yeah. collapse of the British infrastructure and, you know, the fact that London was in ruins up until, well, mm. you know, even in the 70s in many parts of it, but, um, yeah. but <laughs> certainly a lot later than, than you would think. I, th- I think it's really worth pointing out as well that, you know, it, it takes something that we've never seen before <laughs> for it to take off like this. The Daleks were so iconic and took off the way they did because no one had seen them before. Like, they were a new thing. And that's very much the same as the Beatles. That's absolutely what it is, Cole. Yep, we've never seen anything like this before, and this is why it speaks to some great future or some sort of contemporaneous hole that needs to be filled culturally, and and those two things happen at the same time. It's not to say that Mm. Dark Mania and Beatlemania have parallels between one another, and that's it. I think it's more so that they're both manifestations of a wider cultural renaissance that happens in Britain, Mm. it just so happens that they uh, mm. manifest themselves mm. through Doctor Who and through, more, more uh, importantly, I guess, Beatlemania. Yeah. And they're both so easy to, for like kids to imitate in a, play, in a playground, right? Like the Beatles yes. have this iconic, at the start, yeah. they're kind of like, they always wear suits and they've got the mop tops, right? Yeah. It's just so, it's like simple. And then Daleks are just, mm-hmm. you know, you just put on a funny voice and hold your arms out like sticks and they're both so easy <laughs> to catch on like that, I think. So I think it's a mm. part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, go back <laughs> to the mop tops for a second. Now look at the yeah. merchandising with the Beatles. Like it's, it mirrors what was going on with the Daleks. You've got mm. Christmas this is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Toys, Dalek toys, huge, huge sales. You could buy mop top wigs at your corner store. It's it's hilarious. Like people were you know going out and they want to they want to wear the same shoes that the Beatles are wearing. Mm-hmm. They want to wear the same sort of suits. That you know they're emulating it, aren't they? Absolutely. And this is exactly the point that we have a sort of rise of consumerism in Britain in the early '60s that wasn't seen before and really sort of predated that in mm-hmm. the US by a good ten years because their economy was better. Now Britain's caught up, right? And so disposable income of sorts means that mm. you can have kids' toys and daypole Dalek figures and, you know, as you say, mop-top wigs in the corner yeah. store. Yeah. Um, they're absolutely everywhere in terms of the media as well, just in terms of television shows, obviously, mm. but um, we'll see movies, both the Beatles yes. and yeah. the Daleks yeah. have uh, two movies that they mm. uh, release in this period mm-hmm. of time. Yeah, let's maybe have a look at this because the sort of the overall shape of you know how this emerges through 1963 really reaches its zenith through 1964 and peaks in 1965, and then that sort of decline and fall and disappears entirely pretty much by by the end of the summer of 1966. Mm. It's it's mm. a short-lived just around three years or so where it begins to be a absolutely enormous yeah. so it is eerie how closely uh yeah. the the two things like coincide on a timeline uh, uh sweet dorks we, we will link to this in the show notes but steve has made for us to look at 
sort of a timeline with uh, different events uh, in Dalek Mania and Beatlemania, and they do line up very eerily. Mm. You, if you check that out uh, from the show notes, you can find it and look at it with us. It's amazing. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll definitely be posting yeah. this to tour Twitter and things like that, yeah. so our sweet dogs can have a look. But we're looking at a four-year period, well, like sixty-three mm-hmm. through to sixty-six, and Steve has like highlighted some notable events throughout that time, and like yeah. look, even the movies. I think I said earlier in this sh- earlier in this episode, in the '60s, <laughs> the big answer was, yeah. "Want to make some money out of something? Make a movie, put it on the big screen. Yes, people are going to go out and watch it." And that happened with the Beatles and with the Daleks in very similar timelines. Yeah. So maybe let's have a look at this timeline then and and r- trace yeah. that rough shape of you know how it begins and rises and then finally falls. So 1963 is, is very much where mm. certainly Doctor Who starts. It's in early 1963 in March that mm-hmm. basically the BBC sort of sit down and there's a you know, series of discussions at exact level around what this new show could be and lots of different ideas are posited before. Essentially in May of 63, we get the, mm. the program proposal submitted to BBC execs in terms of its current form. What's happening on the, the Beatles side at that point is, is kind of similarly so, but uh, I'll throw it to you guys because you're the, you're the Beatles fans. I'm not so much <laughs> A, a huge fan as you two are. I think Cole's number one. I'll uh, probably be number two. But it's it's that '63 is a huge year for the Beatles. They have those huge singles, um, and they have yeah. like they, they yeah. start doing national tours. And at the end, um, Sunday night at the London Palladium per, um, performance. That's like really the start of people like really exposed mm-hmm. to to a wider Iconic. like home audience. Yeah. You know, kids and families, like everyone, instead of just the people who are into music. Mm. And um, that's about the same same time the the, the first episode of uh, Dal- the first Daleks episode. Yeah. So like again, early '63, uh, "Please Please Me," the first Beatles single, yeah. that was a huge single, leading into for the same year other singles like "From Me to You," "She Loves You," huge songs. Beatlemania is born in later on in 1963. That's where it starts. Yes. Yeah, right at the same as time. As does Dalek Mania. Dalek Mania, 21st of December 1963. Beatlemania, 13th of October 1963. So that's kind of what stuck out to me. That sort of the first part of 1963 is really both of these cultural phenomenons gathering a, a head of steam before, as you say, in 13th of October, Beatlemania. That's when it begins, Dan, mm. that Sunday night at the Pal- mm. London Palladium performance. And it's, it's actually about, th- what, four or five weeks until Doctor Who screens and about uh, seven or eight weeks later we have Dalek Mania born through 10 million Mm -hmm. viewers tuning into the Daleks. So it happens within weeks of one another that these two cultural phenomenons are sprung upon the British public and just erupt in, in, in the winter or heading into the mm. winter of, uh, of, mm. of 1963. Mm. Yeah, it starts to reach a peak like because there's no, there's no sort of there isn't another Dalek episode for a year, right? Until we get to the, what we're talking about yep. now, Dalek Invasion of Earth. And that's like really getting into the peak like when Hard Day's Night comes out mm. that's that like kind of yeah really pushes them yeah. out to the world mm-hmm. like, that's how it's, it's, things start to get crazy right and right before their um, US tour with that, like that's got it like do you think the US the, the, when they go on that US tour and they have those press conferences where they, the Beatles are talking to people and doing funny cracks that, that's like the peak of Beatlemania right it has to be totally yeah, I mean, you look at 1964, mm. that's essentially when the Daleks are really hitting their peak on our screens, and it's also the same year that yeah. the Beatles are now on our screens too. They're not just on our radios, they're on the Ed Sullivan Show, they're making yeah. TV appearances, like you say, Dan, they're involved in television skits and comedy bits, and so it's it's kind of the next level that ramps yeah. up both manias, isn't it? Yeah, and then you go through to, right to the sort of, like, the frenzy, the, right at the end of 64 to the and, and into 65, it's like a frenzied peak. And then, like, 65, you've got The Chase and that first uh, Cushing movie. And that's, like, the same around the same time that, like, yeah. Help comes out, which is just, like, a monster, monster album for the Beatles. Like, num- number one all over, the, everywhere. Mm-hmm. 
and, and so we're going into like the end of 64 and the sort of going in through into 65 is like that's a really the, the really crazy peak of Beatlemania where they're sort of like where Help comes out which is like a monster monster album it's like number one everywhere mm-hmm. they have that US mm. tour and um, another US tour and um, they get knighted by the Queen right well they get MBEs yeah mm-hmm the Help movie, of course, being the first time the Beatles were in glorious yeah. colour yeah. as well. Oh my god! Yeah, and, and what else is in colour for the first time about a month later, which is Doctor Who and the Daleks, the Peter Cushing film, comes out in the cinemas in glorious Technicolor. Mm. And the lead-up <laughs> to that is actually very similar in terms of the profile mm. of the way in which the Beatles are, are really, you know, hitting the very peak of their fame through Beatlemania. Doctor Who is consistently mm. attracting 10, 11, 12 million viewers at this stage. As we get through Dalek Invasion of Earth, it's hitting 12 million by episode six. A few months later on, in, in May of 65, we return with The Chase, one of Dan's favourites. And, and as we say goodbye to Ian and Barbara in that, we're hitting mm. around about 10 million people as well. So it's absolutely huge. Um, there's other episodes in this run where Doctor Who is hitting 14 million people. Um, it is an absolute oh. phenomenon. And that's without the Daleks. Yeah. Before, of course, yeah. what are we talking about? Less than four weeks after the, the premiere of Help, the Cushing film comes out. And this is, this is it. That summer of 1965 is really where Dalek mania, Beatle mania, that sort of <laughs> British renaissance and absolute yeah. uh, you know, height of that early 60s. Hits its it peak, hits hey? its peak, as you say, Cole. Absolutely. And it's, it's there that we you know, start maybe to go into that downhill run. Nothing lasts forever. And, and after the, the Daleks movie with, mm-hmm. uh, with Peter Cushing, the Dalek master plan, which is actually a 12-week story yeah. run, <laughs> from the 13th of November to, the, to, to yeah. late January. And we can start to see the dip, just the, just the beginning of the dip of, of Dalek Mania and, and, and Doctor Who's popularity. We're starting now to go into 9 million, 8 million viewer territory. And it's still huge, it's still big, but it's not quite mm. what it once was. And I think that may parallel with the, the Beatlemania on the other side. Well, I, I think if you were, if you really want to kill something, do a 12-parter on it, man, because that's too much Daleks. Like, that's, you know what I mean? That's probably too much, too much Daleks. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of parallels the, the end of the Beatles craze, right, Cole? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, look, by this point, the Beatles themselves are changing too. They're moving with the times. Essentially, Beatlemania had gotten to a point where they couldn't Mm. play live anymore because A, they couldn't hear themselves over the screaming, Mm -hmm. and B, like shows would just be getting cut short. People were going bonkers. They'd rush the stage. Sometimes they'd only get one or two songs into their set and they'd get led off the stage because it was too dangerous. So, you know... In this, in that, in that instance, you know, we're seeing we, we, we lose the suits a bit, mm. we lose the mop tops. Um, you know, by the time that Rubber Soul's out, the Beatles are mm. a very different band. By the time Revolver is recorded, they're largely a studio band. They're no longer touring. They're writing and recording solely in Abbey Road. People would hang outside trying to catch glimpses of them because they knew that that was the only way they were ever mm. going to see them again at this stage. All right, so we're now heading into 1966 and Doctor Who's ratings are starting to fall on television. Mm -hmm. By the end of Hartnell's reign as the Doctor, uh, we're sort of in the five, six million territory. It's it's half what we had at the peak of Dalek mania with Dalek invasion of Earth and the chase. And in August of 1966, so very close to when Hartnell is actually about to leave the show, Dalek's invasion of Earth 2150 AD, the second Cushing film comes out in Technicolor, we love it. We spoke about how, how <laughs> superior it is to the television series, yeah. but it actually bombs. And the reason for that is oh. the dialects are passe. It's yesterday's yeah. news. And in fact, it's probably about yeah. 12 months too late for this film. And I'm not sure how that sort of parallels to what's mm. happening with the Beatles, but it's interesting what you say, Cole, about them changing their, their sound. And maybe 
moving away from that image that made them famous in terms of the mop tops, which um, I think we start to see them depart from that, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, The the whole look changes as well as as the music, yeah. Mm. Um, Essentially, they do evolve with the times and the Beatles are as popular as ever, really, for the rest of their career. But um, they don't necessarily fizzle out like Dalek Mania does, but they but Beatlemania itself, or at yeah. least what Beatlemania was, it does, does that it? definitely yeah. did. Yeah, this, like did in terms out. of like having massive concerts with like millions of screaming teen, teenagers, that's that's all kind of over, right? Mm. And like Steve, you've yeah. it's it's wild actually, Steve. You've got here in August 1966 that um that's when Lennon uh, let his let slip his like bigger than Jesus um remark that really kind of like well, it comes back to haunt him, doesn't it? Because that yeah. he says this in March, and it's not until they return yeah, to the US time, for their yeah. third tour that basically they're met with a lot of antagonism and, and people burning their records, right? Yeah. They are. Yep, Protests. absolutely. A lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of religious uh, goings on there. Mm. It was people that went to church. They were, they were the ones who were largely just burning <laughs> mounds of Beatles records. That was considered blasphemous. It was, yeah, it was a bit got, I mean, it did get taken entirely out of context. Yeah, so the Beatles' last tour begins just after the Dalek movie comes out, and they—that's when they met with all those protests against that bigger yep. than Jesus thing. And then they, like at the end of August, they have—is <laughs> it their last show? Yeah, at yeah. Candlestick Park in San Francisco, the last show. Yeah. Um, I don't think we can count the rooftop concert that came a few years later because I mean that essentially is technically the last live performance, but it's not. It's not the last concert. Yeah. Okay. So, so what we have then on the 29th of August is the last concert for the Beatles and the end of Beatlemania the, the public have very much sort of fallen out of love with that image of the mop tops the, the Fab Four from Liverpool and they themselves mm-hmm. have sort of evolved away from that they've be, you know, yep. grown into essentially men who are experimenting with eastern sounds and uh, philosophies and religion etc mm. so mm. the Beatles mm. as defined by Beatlemania is dead interestingly on the other side with with Dalek Mania the 5th of August is when uh, the film premieres and within weeks, it's very clear uh, no one's coming to watch this. Nobody's uh, really interested in Dalek <laughs> Mania anymore. And so... They've seen it before and... It's been played out. And that, that period mm. of time finishes for both the Beatles and the Daleks in terms of uh, the end of August. And both cultural phenomena disappear, essentially, at that point in time. Forever in the history books, but yes, gone. I think it's wild that these these two timelines line up so well. And I strongly encourage Sweet Dogs to yeah. go to the uh, our, our show notes and check out this thing that Steve made because it's wonderful. It's really great. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we're going to pop it up on our Twitter and our Facebook and uh, everyone should have a look. It's great. So, I mean, like, but how did this happen? Like, how did they parallel each other so well? I, it's a good question, Colin. There's probably, you know, tomes that have been written around the Beatles and maybe even Doctor Who that sort of try to explain this. I just, I just want to sort of go back to perhaps where this all started, you know, in that late autumn winter of 1963. Interestingly, both the Beatles and Doctor Who are disrupted by essentially the assassination of JFK. Yes. And, mm. you know, as, as a president, it's interesting because he, even to this day, retains this mystique of, of, of a youthful, future-facing president who promises a better future. And it's interesting that both the Beatles and the Daleks, uh, or Doctor Who at least, sort of talk to that future, talk to some kind of aspect of, of things getting better and uh, a sort of sense and mm. an optimism about the future. And I think what kind of happens by 1966 is that in terms of the audience for the Beatles, they grow up. They're no longer the teeny boppers who mm-hmm. you know, want that, that sort of bubblegum sound. And the Beatles themselves have, have grown past that as well. Yeah, they're growing beards. Whereas with Doctor Who, I think... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Whereas with Doctor Who, a similar thing happens where that audience that are transfixed as children 
by Daleks mm. have found that that story has played out and they themselves have grown out of it as well. So over a period yeah. of around about three years or so, I think what essentially happens is that Doctor Who and the Beatles uh, outgrow or are outgrown by their audience. Mm. I think that's very accurate. Yeah. Wild. And to survive, they both have to change. And in yeah. the Beatles, we have a huge change in, in terms of their, their musical direction. Mm. And with Doctor Who, we have Patrick Troughton. Yeah. Ah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's valid to point out also that, you know, whilst I say that you know, the Beatles remained just as popular throughout the, the rest of their career in a different way, it's the same with the Daleks. We've still got the Daleks. Mm. Yeah. The Daleks are still popular yeah. and recognised as... Yeah. This is absolutely true, Cole, but what you have with the two Troughton stories is a way of easing the Daleks out. And with Evil of the Daleks, essentially we have mm. potentially the last Dalek story ever, but also the last Dalek story for a good five years. It's not until yeah. Day of the Daleks that mm. they return in 1972, 73. They really space them out, don't they? Yeah, yeah that is so And so, so they true. have disappeared from our screens and from the public consciousness in that time. Mm. So there's something else we haven't quite touched on yet, and there's a reason for that. Uh, there's another iconic thing that happens in this in this story, isn't there? And it has something yeah. to do with the character Susan, played by Caroline Ford. Uh, <laughs> this is her final story. This she leaves, and it's the first departure by a companion, right? Yes, it is. the The original TARDIS crew are dismantled mm. at this point. Yeah, I think it was like in the papers and stuff a little bit, like. I think mm. they, they were, they were, people knew that she was going to... Like, not everyone, and not kids probably, but like, mm. I think it was starting to get into the public eye that she was wanting to leave because she was unhappy. and mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see... And you can, you can kind of see why she was unhappy, even in this story, yeah. which, in which she gets mm. a bit more character development than usual. She's kind of like... She breaks... Like, she does the classic ankle twist in like 30 seconds mm. into, the, into the episode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, like, and she's, she cries and she... Um, she wails and hides constantly and she must have been so exhausting for her and, and mm. annoying, right? Well, I think it's because it's so different to the role that she was promised. So in 1963, mm. Mm. Uh, we actually have Honor Blackman in the Kathy Gale role in The Avengers and that's kind of how the, the role in part was sold to Carol Ann for that she would be an action heroine uh, mm. who also has telepathic powers, which we see in the sense rights, but don't really go yeah. anywhere after that. And it's kind yeah. of really a, a case of putting Susan into a, a holding pattern where she is, you know, the kid who gets into trouble, as Sidney Newman sort of conceived of her originally. She's twisting her ankles, as you say, Cole. She's screaming at rats in, you know, uh, revolutionary France mm. um, prisons and dungeons. Like, there's nothing that this character does other than essentially be, be put at peril and, and, and react hysterically. And that's not... Mm. enough reason for an actress to sort of continue on in a part no. for much mm. longer than a year and I don't blame Caroline Ford at all for wanting to go out but it does sort of speak to me about almost the betrayal of the promise of Susan here she is as you know the granddaughter of the doctor who you know later we, we find out is a time lord and all the rest of it but even back in the early days is you know someone who you know comes from another planet has a time machine etc she could have been something absolutely extraordinary and we could have had much more of the characterization that we had Particularly early on, you know, we see it in an unearthly child. We see it in the sense rights, as I say. But none of that counts. None of that's actually something that's developed. And instead, we have a character, Susan, who needs to be rebooted. And the next character we see, Vicky, I think is essentially Susan done right. And like, she, yeah, because she gets more, she gets, she, like, it's almost a kick in the teeth. She gets more character development in this story than she has, like, almost ever. That, that's a really nice... Yeah scene where she talks about how she never really feels like she belongs anywhere she's never had a real identity like that's 
that's like her prop that's like caroline ford's problem with the role right like it's almost like the writers are throwing it back to her but like <laughs> and there's, there's, she finally gets some development and it's that bit where the, the wildest bit to me was when she talks to david she's like we'll just get back in the tardis and go and, and he's like and he's like as if it's like the solution to everything and he's like what do you i can't go we've got to fight the get the mm, earth yeah. back this is what she's like no no but we could just leave and I, and I was just like what wait let's just go grandfather let's go and he's like okay you know what i mean like yeah and it's and it's further like uh it's further putting like a point on that whole idea that she runs that she's essentially yeah her instinct is to hide i i think that's true to a degree but i also feel like it sort of speaks to the way in which and when we first first see her, she could well be a 15-year-old high school student. She's someone who wants to belong in 1963. She listens to John uh, Smith and the Common Men. You know, she's up on the music. <laughs> she's she's someone who's very much of the time, and she just wants to belong in that place. But, of course, they can't stay, and, you know, they, they disappear off into 100,000 BC and, and, and caveman times. Um, and I think Susan is a character who is in search of a home as a result of that, and she does find that, interestingly, with David it is still something that doesn't quite sit well with me, though, that maybe it's the lack of characterization or the development of the relationship between Susan and David. And it is 1964 television, so maybe we need to be kind in that regard. But we're essentially yeah. marrying off a companion to get rid of her, it kind of feels like at the end. Whereas I feel like it probably should have been something that was better signposted throughout the six episodes to the point where the Doctor couldn't possibly take Susan away because this is actually where she belongs now. And I think that's kind of the perhaps even the intent of 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 what that that storyline plays out as but um yeah it, it's not something that uh, probably is what the character ought to have been or could have been i think a lot of the way that susan's handled in this last story as well it just it hasn't dated well and it's it really yeah. speaks to the sort of the misogyny of the times and the yeah because we were talking about it before and like this is supposed to be a character like you said steve at the start she's like a teenage girl but she also displays like she knows all the things that their teachers are gonna are trying yeah. to teach her like she's supposed to be super intelligent alien and yeah. she's uh, and the doctor says to her earlier on he says you need a jolly good smacked bottom that was the first yes. one where i was like um okay <laughs> uh, apart from the stuff where they ask Barbara if she can cook, that was another yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah but yeah. right at right at the end, he says, "Yeah." When he's like, you can see the doctor's like really thinking about leaving him with with, with leaving her with David, and he says, "You need taking in hand." <laughs> like, oh my god! Because she's because she's gone wild and she needs a man to like hold her down. Yes. And he says, "Yes." You you should you should get you should um have the chance to live normally like any woman should. Yes. What? Wow! Wow! Absolutely. Dude. And the message being that, of course, for a woman to really have an identity, she needs a man and she needs to settle down and she needs to be a housewife and she needs to have that Holy. element of normalcy. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. That is an unfortunate element that you can't run away from in the way in which Susan's yeah. written out. I mean, I, there's still a part of me that wants to sort of hold out to that line that this is a kid who is just looking for a place to belong and ultimately she finds it and maybe that's something that might redeem it to some degree. But no, I think you're right. I think this is just the first instance of many of where if we want to get yeah. rid of a companion mm. in Doctor Who, we marry them off and it's pretty unsatisfactory as a result. Mm. And she doesn't even really choose to, to stay. She actually no. chooses to go because no. she can travel anywhere no. in time and space. Amazing. Um, yeah. But that the choice makes... got taken away from her as well. Yeah, wild. He did it for her. So from, it's the it's one of the worst companion um, leavings ever. It is quite sweet. There is there are sweet moments in this awful thing sure. where he leaves her leaves her behind in a post apocalyptic wasteland. But it's pretty bad. I think it also. Uh, I was just thinking about it. I think this might be the first time we ever got a kiss in Doctor Who too. <gasps> that scene mm. where David and Susan. Yes, I was really sort of... surprised to see that. Actually, yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. Oh, scandal. Yeah. And it was quite, it was actually, 
like surprisingly well handled. It was quite sweet and romantic. Mm. I enjoyed it. It was, <laughs> it was good. Yeah. I love. I'm gonna say I do love that scene between Susan and David at the end, before the Doctor leaves, where they're basically they can't even look at each other. They've got mm. their backs to each other because they're really showing it. Like they're really revealing to each other how they actually feel. And, you know, he, he says, I love you, Susan. Yes. And he can't look at her when he says it. Yeah. And maybe it isn't just 1964 and what you can and can't do on television. Mm. But it, it actually is a really beautifully written ending. And I'm, this is David Whittaker. Uh, it has to be remembered. He also is leaving the, the, the show at the end of this story himself. And mm. I'm certain that he's the one who's written the, the scenes between Susan and David and also between the Doctor and Susan, but also that incredible monologue that Hartnell has mm. that closes out the episode and which is reprised oh, at the my of Five Doctors, which is when we next see yep, Susan. Yeah. Mm. So, so, you know, it's it's bittersweet. There are things that work about it. There are things that don't. But certainly the uh, very believable, almost kitchen sink drama kind of dialogue that they're given mm. between the two, yeah. uh, between those three characters and the two conversations they have, absolutely incredible and capped off by that poetry right at the end. Mm. Beautiful stuff. Yeah, They, they finally is. give her like quite... Uh, and like almost an adult scene like something interesting and there's mm. a bit of development it almost mm. makes almost but not quite makes up for <laughs> what are for the worst moments in when she, the, <laughs> yes. uh, Jenny is trying to get her to come with her to rescue someone and, and she's freaking out and Susan is freaking out and she says shut up Jenny I just yeah. like <laughs> laughed out loud it was <laughs> wow that was wild so good oh. yeah there is one more thing that I think doesn't quite work in the way in which it's written out and you guys did allude to it earlier in terms of the, the lack of agency on Susan's behalf this is mm. a character who, as the Doctor's granddaughter, is not seen again until the Five Doctors, as I mentioned earlier. And conceivably, yes. there's no reason for the Doctor not to not go back and at least visit her once in a while, which we mm. which we mm. don't have um, for, for fair enough reasons because the show obviously changes and and you know it's not the same story mm. as is told in that first year. But how's this for a bit of headcanon? Mm. So this mm. is a timeline on Earth in the future in the 22nd century where the Daleks have control, right? Where have we seen mm. this before? Or later, rather? It's Day of the Daleks. Uh, now, right, what okay. happens to that timeline in Day oh, of God. the Daleks where the Daleks control the Earth? It's erased. It's a parallel universe. The reason why, I contend, the Doctor oh, can't goodness. go back to visit Susan at any point is because where they land in uh, 2160, whatever it oh, is, in, an under, in the Dalek invasion of Earth, is actually a parallel universe. And that's my headcanon <gasps> as to why the Doctor never... Yikes. Wow. Wow. Oh, my God. I never thought of that. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got all timey-wimey. I didn't see that coming. That's, that's lovely headcanon. That's lovely. I, I always... That's lovely headcanon. I always kind of hang on the speech he makes at the end, that lovely speech that mm. where he says he'll come back one day. He'll come back. And... Mm. Um, you know, I was always kind of waiting for another story where he would mention it at least or maybe go back. But I think it's yes. kind of nice because it kind of always, for me, kind of tantalizingly leaves open the possibility that the new show will, will he'll go oh back and God. visit. He or she will go back and visit. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? But would they, I honestly, would they butcher it? <laughs> I thought we might have actually gotten it with the last Capaldi series. Yes, me too. I felt, I know you and I were talking a lot about it, Steve. Yeah. It was like the, from the first, first episode, was it Pilot? Yeah, the pilot, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's just so much alluding to the idea mm. that, <laughs> I remember that, that. Yeah. Susan could come back. Where the photo's on his desk in the university. We were like, it's yeah. going to be someone big, right? Who could it be? And, and you guys, we were sort of you could just like, when we, imaginations ran yep. away. We were like, maybe it's Susan. That was <laughs> kind of relieved. Oh, my God. And it could have happened. It could have been done. <laughs> yeah, I'd love the idea of coming back, but I also worried that they would, it would be awful. <laughs> 
It could know, have been. It could have been. But do, do you know where they could have done it and it wouldn't have been awful? Is actually in Twice Upon a Time. And oh. it's one of those things where obviously the 12th Doctor sees Bill as the embodiment of the, of the glass lady. Mm, but what yeah. if the first Doctor saw not Bill, but Susan? That would have been a lovely way mm. to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like Matt Smith, Matt Smith just sees Amy Pond like, you know, in a fever dream. Right? So it's, <laughs> it's kind of a, it's becoming kind of a, like a tradition that they have a glimpse of like Before best yep. or something. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, yeah why, that would have been lovely. Yeah, That would have been. <laughs> anyway, all by the by. Well, uh, it's time for the first of two segments, gentlemen. The first <laughs> one being, gentlemen, what did we forget? <laughs> it's let's cover what we forgot with your hosts Daniel, Stephen, and Cole. God, what did we forget? I've only got little bits. Do you guys want? Can I go? Yeah, for yeah, sure. Um, you because you were talking about before um, how we were sort of like it's the second Dalek story, and they may not necessarily have intended to have a second one, despite Terry Nation's ambition. But because I read somewhere that they had to borrow some Dalek props back off uh, children's mm-hmm. home, which they've been donated to, which oh. I think is wild. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> I hope they got them back because they trashed a lot of Dalek props in this story. <laughs> you know? I think all up they only had six Daleks maybe or five. I'm yeah. not exactly sure. Yeah, all up. Sounds great. about right. So good. Um, mm. uh, it's a little bit of... Uh, there was. A, I did notice a little bit of um, BBC casual racism when Dortmund mm. is doing the info dump and he just casually mentions that like Asia, Africa and South America have been wiped out cool and so instead of <laughs> instead of like the world coming back and revolting he's like the whole you know, the, the, the whole of England and the whole of Europe will be set alight and it's like cool <laughs> so all the people of colour are gone and it's just the white people who are gonna oh, wow. am I drawing too long a bow on that one I don't think I am no no you're not because Terry Nation does something very similar with uh, survivors where basically the only people who survive the uh, that pandemic seem to be white middle class British people so yeah it's <laughs> it's a thing <laughs> That's really awful. Uh, that's really awful. Wow. Um, the only other thing, I, I yeah, I did like. There's a lot of world building in this that I really like. There's the they talk about packs of dogs roaming mm. this the cities oh, and yeah. there's like mm. empty towns with no Daleks and lots of food and like those the little scene with the garment workers, the ladies who are making the garments the for slaves. Yes, I just really mm. love those little mm. touches of world building. Give you a, a bigger idea of what's going on outside. And by the way, Barbara nearly 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 sussed them out. She's a genius. <laughs> yeah, and that nasty old crone and her daughter. <laughs> That scene where they, they hand Barbara and Jenny into the Daleks in exchange for food. Mm. It's just crazy. Really nasty. That's another World War Two thing right there, right? So this is kind of, yep. uh, you know, collaborators, collaborators. in Vichy France uh, handing over, you know, whether it's uh, airmen who have dropped into rural villages uh, over to the Gestapo or over to the, to the Nazis. Uh, this is the thing that happened during the Second World War. I've got another one. We're going to touch on this a bit later, anyway. But the slithers—can we talk about the oh, slithers? Just for oh, yeah. a sec, because it's not worth—it's not worth. They were ridiculous. But I know what I wanted to touch on was the comment about how the black Dalek or the Dalek Supreme, because this is the first story oh. where we get the whole ranking system of Daleks mm-hmm. too. Yeah. He seemed the black Dalek likes to keep them around like pets. Yeah. Now, what was that? I think the slither comes from the swamp that you see in the Daleks, where all those sort of horrible <gasps> tentacle creature beastie things. Okay. Are. So, so the black Dalek didn't want to travel without his binky. Oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, I only have one one last thing to say. One last, what do we forget? And it's uh, I don't know if it's the first time ever on Doctor Who, but it's that classic um, re like leaving the rebels to rebuild their world. Like say, well, you guys have got a lot of rebuilding to do. And they're like, oh, do you want to stay and help us? And he's like, mm, no, I'm just gonna. <laughs> I'll just leave Susan. You guys are fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just that, that thing where the doctor's like, no, nah, I'm good. You guys are good. I'll, I'll see you later. 
Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's the first. That's a classic, classic uh, Doctor failing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's great. I do like that line. The um, he's whispering a new beginning. Is it a new beginning that he says? Yes. There is some poetic little line like that. Yeah. What yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that good. that's Whitaker's dialogue. I'm sure at the end of part six. Yes. The chimes of Big yeah, Ben. Yeah. Big for Ben tolls for the yeah. first time in God knows how long, and he was like a new beginning. So lovely. Hmm. It really is. Uh, all right, then, well, without further ado, we should probably move on to our next segment. It's cliffhangers. Crackers or clangers. Let's talk about the cliffhangers of Dalek Invasion of Earth. Were they crackers? Were they clangers? And without further ado, let's start off with episode one. It is the monster reveal or the Dalek reveal. A Dalek rises from the waters of the Thames. Mm-hmm. I love this one. Yeah, the visuals alone make it an absolute cracker of all time. Definitely cracker. Yeah. Yeah, classic reveal. Coming up out of the water, I actually honestly was not expecting it because so I haven't good. read the book or seen the thing for so long. Mm. Um, and it's the only one that I think, because I, I was just wondering to Steve aloud before, I know that if the, the Daleks would have been um, in the Radio Times the week before and it would have been a big thing that they're coming back. But if you hadn't read the Radio Times or something, the mm. first episode mm. is called World's End. So you may not have mm. known that the Daleks are coming back. So to have to find out with that amazing reveal, cracker. Mm-hmm. That's a cracker. You could see a lot of kids whooping with glee, couldn't you? Yeah. Oh, At wow. home watching that. Yeah. So good. And then waiting for the next episode. Yeah. So unanimous cracker. Mm. Moving on. Episode two. Okay, so the doctor is drugged and prepared for robotization. Um, I feel like they cut um, either a little bit early or a little bit too late. It should have been the attack on the, the Dalek saucer yeah. uh, by the rebels. Uh, with but the doctor mm, yeah. sort of placed in peril here. I'm, I'm, I don't think it's great, but I don't know if it's a clanger, so maybe a clacker? Yeah. I'll go with clacker. It's it's underwhelming. I guess it's serviceable, but yeah. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a cranger for me, yeah. It's it like you know, it's like a cool um dome uh, lowered over a person. It's very sci fi mm. and I like that, but it's yeah. yeah, it's a bit nothing. Yep, I agree with that. Okay, so unanimous clacker or and cranger. <laughs> Moving on to episode three. The ticking firebomb is placed near the Doctor, Susan and David's hiding place <laughs> by the Robomen. So I guess in this instance we're led to believe that they don't know it's there and it's a ticking bomb mm. and the episode sort of just ends on that close-up coming in on the bomb and that's kind of it. Rubbish. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say clanger. Maybe if you're a little kid in the 60s this was exciting because there wasn't maybe there wasn't that much exciting stuff on but I don't think so. I think it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a clanger. Mm. Uh, I'm saying yep. I, I don't think this is a particularly uh, you know threatening or or exciting one, but you've got the ticking bomb, and I mm. think you know countdowns in mm. Doctor Who sort of become a staple of of cliffhangers, but this one's not a particularly memorable one, no. So clanger for me. Mm. Are we jaded? Are we spoiled? Maybe we are, but I think it's, <laughs> I think it is a clanger. Mm. Well then, okay, unanimous clanger. Episode four, the Slithers attack. Mm. How do we feel? They're awkward. They're clumsy. They're confusing. Mm. Uh, I feel like their a lot of their action has to be vocalised so we know what's going on. It's kind of like, he's coming right for us. Yeah. And that's how we know that it's coming yeah, right yeah. for them. Clanger. Like, why add another monster when you've got the Daleks? Mm. I mean, it's- no, it's a clanger. The, the, the film is right in excising the sliver from, the, from its script. Yes. Um, so, yeah, clanger. Yes. All right, unanimous clanger again. We're, we're unanimous all the way up here so far, guys. So let's see how we go with episode five. Ian is trapped inside the capsule as it is placed in position to detonate the fissure of the Earth's crust. Like I, like I said, only Ian could accidentally climb yeah. inside a bomb. Like, what? <laughs> Amazing. 
so good. Look, it's serviceable. It is kind of an, um, a nasty pickle to get yourself into. <laughs> Definitely a nasty pickle. This is peril for peril's sake. And again, it just sort of highlights the lunacy of the the sort of shift away to the mine uh, subplot, which to me doesn't make sense in any regard, not least in this. So Strongly disagree. I I can't do it. This is a clanger. (laughs) I think it's a clanger, yeah. It's a clanger, yeah. Okay, we're unanimous again. Mm. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we're going to be unanimous with with the last one as well. Episode six, all I've got written down is... One day I shall come back. It's the start of that iconic speech that we've already mentioned. Oh, gosh. As a, as a well, obviously the last episode of any Doctor Who story is rarely an actual cliffhanger. But uh, to talk about the departure of the story, the last scene of the story, I think it's beautiful. Yes, yes it is. This is, look, it's not a traditional cliffhanger. It doesn't stack up to the Dalek reveal emerging from the Thames, mm. but what it does do is provide us with one of the most heart-touching, gloriously beautifully mm. written pieces. And, and, it's, it's, and it's right that this is repeated at mm. the beginning of The Five Doctors. This is yes. a, a moment in Doctor Who history that resonates to this day. It's, it's glorious, gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, we're not we're not quite in the golden age of the uh, BBC crap joke ending uh, just yet, yeah. but they have done a <laughs> no. few, and I'm just really glad they didn't do it for this. I don't think they could have, and that speech no. is straight up straight up lovely. And, uh, oh, yeah, it's it's just one of those moments where Hartnell takes the role, it doesn't yeah. he? He he just is the Doctor, his right. Doctor. He is his Doctor in that in that speech. Definitely, yeah. cracker, cracker, cracker. Mm. Unanimous all across the board. Well done, gents. <laughs> lovely. <laughs> So time to share the love again as we do on New to Who, uh, two this time actually, uh, a new podcast, the Missing Episodes podcast with Paul and Tim. This is particularly resonant uh, in terms of the Hartnell era where obviously a lot of his episodes are missing. Uh, and yep. these two fine chaps, Paul and Tim, sometimes with uh, some very authoritative guests on, delve deep into the backstories of all 97 missing episodes of 60s Doctor Who. So if you're into that, oh, wow. check it out. Cool. It's a really good one. I'm into that. Extremely. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, the Missing Episodes yeah. podcast. Really, really recommended. Cool. Uh, over on Doctor Who's line, is it? Uh, they have recently recorded, and maybe even by the time you hear this, have released their NHS charity special episode on Fugitive of the Jadun. Now, how's this? They've got Sophie Aldred as the Ruth Doctor, and they've also got cameos <laughs> oh. from the likes of Katie Manning, Richard Franklin, <gasps> Vinay oh. Patel, Deep Roy, Toby Haydock, uh, John oh. Chalice, and Colin Baker. So... Please have a look oh, out wow. for that. And if you can donate, please do so uh, to a worthy cause, the NHS. Absolutely. Great. Well, that's exciting. I can't wait for that. Love it. Yeah, it's good, good stuff, Steve. Well done. Yeah. Uh, my shout out isn't really a shout out. It's just a recommendation. I mean, we've we've mm. talked about the movie and how wonderful, uh, how how great it is. It's not a masterpiece, but I really love it. Also, the the mm. novelization. It's it's it was really lovely, and it's a, it's a lot tighter. And um, the cover is kind of uses kind of the movie the movie Roboman and the yes. movie Flying Saucer. It's a really cool Chris Achilles cover. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't know if I okay, can I recommend the novelization and the movie because that's three sure. Dalek invasions of Earth. That's a lot of Dalek. You invasion. can recommend anything you like. If you have to pick one. I'm gonna be a bit of a tr- like a podcast trader and say maybe watch the movie because it's <laughs> just f- really colourful and fun. Yeah. I mean, and I really Fair love. Enough. I'd never seen the Peter Cushing Doctor until yesterday, and I love him. He's great. Um, I think I'll personally take the recommendation to read the book because I've seen the film mm, a few times in my life, and uh, <laughs> I've never read the book, so I'm cool. going to enjoy a Terence Dix target that I've never read before. So thanks nice. for the recommendation. Yeah, and if you don't want, if you want to cheat, kind of, and uh, listen to the audio book, William Russell 
uh, actually narrates oh, that. Oh, wow. It, oh is, it is wonderful. He does a bang-on First Doctor as well. Really, really wonderful. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Cool. Um, I've also got to thank you. It's to all of our sweet dogs, particularly those who were involved in the recent New to Who World Cup. Yeah. Thank you for all your votes and your engagement. It was quite an exciting tournament. Uh, played out over about four weeks, as a World Cup usually is. The ultimate winner, mm. by the way, as voted by you, the Ark in Space. And good choice, yep. sweet dogs. I think we can agree yeah. on that. Absolutely. Oh, and one final shout out to uh, the John Pertwee Appreciation Society. Thanks for having us. I'm not going to say any more on that. All right. You know who you are. <laughs> you can buy the Dalek Invasion of Earth from BBC Online or the usual outlets. You can follow New to Who on Twitter at, at New to Who Podcast and also Facebook or even email us at New to Who Podcast at gmail.com. All of our episodes can be found at newtowho.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like subscribing or leaving a bajillion star review, these things really do help us. We hate goodbye, so until next time, I'm Stephen. I'm Cole. Shut up, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> See you.